0: Hi, this is Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson.
1: We're here to introduce a special series of Last Night at School Committee, focused on the search for a new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools.
0: It's seven episodes, including a compilation of views that we heard from 14 important community leaders in Boston.
1: And individual interviews with the past six superintendents of Boston, including Tommy Chang and Brenda Casilius. We ask these guests their views on the type of leader that Boston needs now and the priorities for our public school system.
0: The question is, Ross, who will be successful in the role?
1: Yes, and what can Bostonians do to make the next superintendent's term impactful and successful?
0: Today, Ross and I are joined by Mike Contampasas, who served as interim superintendent of Boston Public Schools from 2006 to 2007.
1: Mr. Contampasas, it is so wonderful to see you today, and thank you so much for allowing us to uh, interview you about the Boston Public Schools superintendency, I have to start by saying you hired me as a principal in Boston Public Schools. I was a teacher for a number of years, and then you hired me to be the principal of the Haley. And my first year of principalship was also your first year as superintendent. So 2006 and 2007 is when you were the superintendent of Boston Public Schools. And Mike, would you just start to, by telling us like a little bit about being called up to be superintendent? Like, What was that like?
2: Scary. Scary. <laughs> um. It was a little bit like the time that I became head of school from the teaching ranks. They handed me the keys and they told me, you are now the head of school. I had little or no experience doing any of that other than some of the things that I did in administration within the Latin school. But people have forgotten that both Tom and I, Tom Paison and I, decided that we would retire at the same time.
0: (laughs) How did that go? That didn't work out, huh?
2: (laughs) Well, there was a mayor by the name of Menino who did not want both of us to leave at the same time. And he insisted. So yours truly won the short straw. Lo and behold, it was my second opportunity to serve as superintendent, I think, Some of us will remember that for a period of time, Tom was recuperating from a very serious illness, and I happened to sit in at that time as well. I was fortunate that I followed a leader who had his head on straight and recognized the importance of listening to folks. He had put in place a plan that withstood the test of time. He was always focused on improving opportunities for all students in the district, and he insisted on uh, adherence to the design, the model that he had developed, but he also gave us a great deal of flexibility. Suffice it to say that I had, for the nine years that I worked with him as COO, picked up a great deal and tried to simply continue that process until the district was able to find a permanent placement for superintendent.
1: So, Mike, this this interview is really interesting. This is about you uh, and your superintendency in the 2006-2007 school year. But this is also really important to note that you worked for so long with Tom Paisant. And we hear a lot about Tom Paisant's leadership. And he recently passed. And we would have loved to have interviewed him and to hear about how he built a lot of the systems and structures that are in place today. So can you just talk a little bit about your work with Tom Paysant going back to when Tom first started in the district and he and he bought you in as the chief operating officer?
0: Yeah, and in particular, I think it's interesting because that's kind of a topic of conversation, right, about should the new superintendent be an operator or do they need to be partnered with an operator? And so it is interesting to hear about, Mike, your observations as the operator, as the COO, and then moving into the superintendency, and how did the role shift based on your assignment?
2: It was my good fortune to have the opportunity to work with Tom, even though I resisted his request that I come into the central office. He called me three times. I had turned him down twice, The third time. I finally had had enough and said, okay, I will come in. Remember that Tom, in that particular period, had redesigned his administrative team. He went with a COO and a CAO and a chief financial officer, actually, that followed. And then he went to the cluster design. As far as the role that we played, some folks, including Mayor Menino, used to call us the good cop, bad cop. Tom was the good cop. I was the bad cop. We would argue with Mayor Manino, but to his credit, he always gave us the autonomy to do what we felt was in the best interest of the school district. And we learned a lot from that, I did. And I would only hope that as we continue looking for a new superintendent, the relationship with the new mayor is critical. And that relationship has to be built on trust that you have, as mayor, a role to play here. And that is to make sure that you give the new superintendent as much flexibility as possible to run the district. To Nino's credit, he did that with Tom.
1: Mike, can you talk a little bit about operationally during your time as chief operating officer? People talk about this alignment. There, there was a really clear alignment and coherence in the school system at that time. Can you talk about how that was created?
2: Yeah, I think basically we redesigned responsibilities and roles. I took on as COO pretty much all of the what you would call the operational portions of the district. Everything from Custodians to athletics to transportation, all of that became an operational function, but mindful of the fact that we did not make decisions without consulting with the academic side of the house and vice versa. In other words, we didn't make decisions around what we had to do from an operational perspective without realizing what the impact would be academically. Nor did the chief academic officer make decisions unilaterally without recognizing what that impact would be on any operational aspect of the district.
1: And Mike, wasn't there also a lot of principal, what was the role of principal voice at the time?
2: We broke the district up into seven zones or clusters each with a cluster leader who was a sitting principal. Every cluster leader, along with the central team, met weekly with Tom.
0: So did that work better? Because that makes a lot of sense.
1: What I recall is you had these weekly meetings where the superintendent and Mike and, and the team would have these principals in the room and they would ask them for feedback about the decisions that they were thinking about, right? And they were also hearing feedback from these principals about how it was going out there. Right. And then that team at the central level was saying, "Geez, well, what are we going to do to help support these principals?"
0: Yeah, it just makes sense to think about it in smaller chunks. It's a big city. Why did the district move away from that?
2: I think a new superintendent came to town, and as is usually the case, modified the structure based on the superintendent's best thinking. It drifted away from the school leader being a cluster leader as well, to one in which you now see an evolution which has resulted in, I don't know, X number of school superintendents. There are what, three of them at the high school level, and I don't know what the number is now that cover the elementary and middle schools, what's left of them. But in any case, it was simply a, a change in thinking.
1: Mike, let's stay on this sort of central leadership roles for a second. There's been a lot of turnover in BPS in recent years, particularly in these leadership roles, in these central leadership roles. What does that impact have on the district of turnover?
2: Creates a level of dysfunctionality. And I think. There is evidence of that as you read what's been going on in terms of holding anybody accountable for what everyone knows needs to happen in the district. There has been an increase in the number of folks in the central office, particularly around the areas of English language learners and students with disabilities. Now, I'm not suggesting that that wasn't needed. But my concern is you just don't bring people in and not give them a set of responsibilities and hold them accountable for implementing. Do
0: you think then that what's happened is as we've brought more folks into the district to support students, we've done that without very clear goals and objectives. Who should be holding them? Accountable? Is is it the principals? Is it the superintendent? Is it the board? Who should be setting those goals and objectives and why aren't they clear?
2: The answer to your question is all of the above. If you look at the recent decision by the previous school committee to set goals and objectives for the superintendent, in my opinion, they're all qualitative. There is nothing there that measures. Progress. You can't have accountability without some quantitative goal built into the process. That's number one. And that should filter all the way through the district. My feeling is that we need to find someone, if there's someone out there willing to come to Boston, and we can talk about all of the things that I would ask as an outsider coming to the district, but specifically around this whole issue of, how do we hold people accountable? And if we wanna hold them accountable, do we allow them the flexibility to do what's in the best interest of what that local entity called a school thinks is in the best interest of their kids?
1: Mike, I bite, I bite on it. You you said if you if we want you to talk about what the questions you would ask if you were a candidate for the superintendency of Boston Public Schools. And I don't Mike, I don't want to put you on the spot if you're applying for the job. <laughs> Are
2: you kidding? I mean, you know, if I were 30 years younger, I might decide to. What questions would
1: you be asking if you were a candidate for superintendent of Boston? You're looking at Boston, you're saying, okay, this job is open. What would you be thinking about if you were a candidate?
2: I would ask the mayor, first and foremost, do you have the political will to do what's necessary to implement the kind of change that's needed in this district that everybody has talked about for the last decade? And that ranges anywhere from what's the mayor's approach to reconfiguring the district? What do we have now, 48,000 students? we have a whole bunch of schools that are under enrolled so are we willing to take on the tough decisions that need to be made around reforming or reconfiguring the district we don't need all of the schools we have are we clear about what we mean when we go to a grade configuration that builds a K6 7 through 12 model what kind of support are we willing to give principals, particularly with the kind of turnover that is anticipated with new principals, you just don't send a new principal into a school and give them the keys. You guys all know these issues.
0: No, it's nice to hear you say them though.
1: It's very valid, (laughs) yeah, it's validating. It feels good, it feels good.
2: Let me keep going. Uh, (laughs) Instead of just simply talking about it, are we willing to bring some cohesion to all of these groups that are out there now in the district that constantly are on speed dial with the media when they're asked to express their opinion. We have lots of opinions, but we need to have some structure in place, which hopefully co-creates with the community.
0: Right. Well, that's a real strategic plan, right? That's a real plan that says, here's the makeup of our institution, here are their needs, here's our goals and objectives, and here's how we're going to get there.
2: Right. Am I willing to design a curriculum that is least is seamless throughout the district? So, you know, am I willing to look at instruction differently? Am I willing to buy into this, the idea that the old factory model Doesn't work anymore for all kids. Am I willing to buy into what the neuroscientists are telling us around how kids learn, how students learn? You know, it's student assignment, it's transportation, it's the academic stuff. I mean, what are we doing around high school redesign? Are we going to redesign it and still have schedules that are locked into a set model. We want someone that thinks out of the box.
0: At the end of the day, you're saying this all starts with the mayor. And if the mayor doesn't have an appetite for supporting this and making the changes, right, building the strategic plan, making the changes and defending them politically, then it continues to be game over.
1: Yep. If that's the first question you're asking yeah. as a candidate, and do you have the will to take on these hard issues? And the answer is no. Right. Right. Then as a candidate, I'm assuming as a candidate, you're saying that this is not the right job. If you're a job.
0: good candidate, you're, why would you say yes? Interesting. Yeah.
2: By the way, I don't limit this to the mayor as well. I want the Boston delegation to be part of the solution.
1: These are the elected members in the Massachusetts State House who represent Boston.
2: Yeah. From my perspective, and they'll probably get mad at me, but, you know, what can I tell you? They spend an awful lot of time complaining. But when are they advocating for the kind of change that is necessary in order to improve access for all kids in the district is another question. Do I report to the school committee? Do I report to the mayor? People have short memories. Does anybody recall what we went through with an elected school committee?
1: But, so, so, but Mike, if you're a superintendent candidate, you're, you're saying, hey, who am I going to report to? But who who is actually in charge Uh, um, and will the school committee, which is appointed, currently appointed by the mayor, but actively being challenged to move from our city council to move to an elected committee, you're saying as a new superintendent, you would really want to know what that will mean over the next two years, right? That this is being proposed.
2: Ross, it goes back to what you asked me earlier. We were fortunate. I talked about Menino. And even though. He would yell at us periodically. He gave us the autonomy to make decisions. We also had a very strong school committee and a strong leader of the school committee. I don't think people understand. We've lost track. We had a rule in the school department that all issues for the next meeting would be made public the Friday before the meeting. If it wasn't on that agenda, it wasn't discussed. We had a procedure that if we did not have consensus on the committee on an issue, we tabled it until we built that consensus on controversial issues. How many of the issues that come up before the committee nowadays They haven't even been briefed on before it's presented. That doesn't work. And I'd want to know from the committee what their model is for establishing what they are legally charged to do, and that is to make policy. What about state receivership?
1: Would you want to know anything more about state receivership if you're a candidate for superintendent?
2: I'd I'd like to know, first of all, if that's the direction that the state decides to go in. My first question would be, does the district or does the state have the capacity to really implement a district-wide receivership? And secondly, if receivership is a direction that's indicated, break up the district in such a way that the schools that are listed as performing are not necessarily under the same receivership as those that are in need of intervention. I don't know where receivership in a district as large as Boston has worked. Many years ago, Ted Sizer at Brown, when he started the whole issue around school reform said, the biggest impediment to any kind of change is the thicket that exists out there in public education. You can identify the parts of the thicket as well as I can. And if you do not address the status quo, which is protected by that thicket, you're not gonna get any kind of change to begin with. And so I would ask, is there a possibility That part of the system could be put into receivership and would that work?
1: Given the thicket, given the conditions that are in Boston presently and the questions that are surrounding the school district, is it possible, Mike, to get a superintendent here who will be able to stay for a long time and create coherence and create the conditions for success for our students?
0: would it be easier to find someone who's very familiar with the district it feels like if you're coming from the outside given some of the other conversations we've had with past superintendents it's this is a hard place to arrive at and then with all of these different issues to address but maybe you could opine on that mike
2: well i think it's necessary that you have someone that has institutional memory in some sort of leadership position you could have Someone coming in, if indeed you want to follow the receivership model, do you necessarily need an educator to come in and manage the district and get some of the pieces that need fixing back in order? So I don't want to suggest that we won't be able to find anybody, but there are key issues here that have consistently had a negative impact on the sustainability of someone that comes into that position. I guess we need to have answers to the questions that I'm raising.
1: We've had a uh, approach here in Boston, an additive list for our superintendent criteria over the years. I think that list is now seven pages of criteria that we're looking for in a new superintendent. And we've said in the past that if that description is that long, you have no description. You you are essentially just putting out everything out without being clear about what the priorities are. So from your point of view, Mike, if we're going to narrow down the job description or narrow down the focus and the role of the superintendent in Boston, what would those priorities be? What would be asking that person to do? What would be the top three, the top five things that need to get done in the Boston public schools for the superintendent?
2: Well, I think the first is to analyze and redesign the central office to be more efficient. I don't know within the weeds what all of the difficulty happens to be, but I do know that we still have some key problems here that range anywhere from what we've talked about before. Kids with disabilities, the ESL program, academics, you need to prioritize the central office and redesign it you've got to come up with an idea that how do you want the central office to operate? Is it going to be top down or are you going to give the principals and heads of school the autonomy to do what's in the best interest of those kids and then hold them accountable for the results that they mutually design with the superintendent's staff or the superintendent? And you build that autonomy, you increase the flexibility and the autonomy based on the school's ability to meet those initial goals. So you just don't flat out give everybody autonomy. You earn it. But that's a different structure than what I believe is currently in place now. I think one of the key decisions I would make as superintendent Would develop or design an active role for some sort of design studio, some sort of innovative arm of the district. Bring the best thinkers we can find within the district together, get them out of the bowling building, put them in a school that's closed, and let them sit there and do nothing but plan and think out of the box. Let them think about what they wanna do with instruction. Let them think about reconfiguring the district. Let them think about what they're looking for in leadership. You know, the leaders of schools in the 21st century aren't like dinosaurs like me. They are folks who think differently. Is there innovation in instruction? Is there innovation in assessment? A superintendent in a district like Boston can't do that by himself or herself. Set up something, create a deputy superintendent in charge of innovation and design, and take a look at what schools should look like in the 21st century. The other piece of this is redesigning the district differently. I'm not a firm advocate of school choice, guys. Because I don't think you can build the kind of family and community engagement that you need to build the kind of governance and support that you get from a cluster or a zone of schools. That's the role of the design lab, looking at different ways of delivering instruction looking at surround care activities, looking at the entities within these local communities and drawing upon their assets, including the community that you represent in the district. That's one priority. Second is to address the operational stuff that bogs the district down. And thirdly, What do we want these schools to do? What's our vision? You know, we're looking at high school reform. We're looking at mass core standards. Are there different types of assessment that we can use? Other than, you know, teach, test, and hope for the best. Are we doing anything around experiential learning? Do we have to have high school for four years for every kid? That's what a design studio does. You get five people sitting in a room and they do what ifs. And you draw on them. You can't do this in isolation. Part of the problem that we've had is we're trying to address grade configuration without addressing the student assignment plan. We're trying to solve transportation without addressing the other two that I've just talked about. So those are three priorities. You
1: want more. I think that's a solid three priorities, Mike. Last question on this. So what we've covered so far is what questions you would have for the school committee and the mayor around the viability of could this job be doable as a superintendent? And then you've laid out some really clear priorities and even maybe an alternative job description for this person. Maybe it's a more limited role or maybe we do something a little bit different with the superintendent. But Mike, whoever we find, what advice do you have to the community to support that person in the role? And you've talked about it. You said, you know, look, we have all these different constituent groups and, you know, Boston is blessed in in the way that we have our citizens care deeply about public education. How do they support this new person in their role?
2: You know, I've come full circle on this. Uh, You cannot tell the community what we want them to do. You need to co-create the kind of trust that builds a governance model where the community is actively involved. And it can't be talked down. It's got to be from the grassroots up. How you do that, I think, is impacted upon by some of the things within the thicket that we talked about. And part of that is also my problem with school choice. If you don't have a zone of schools which has a predominantly local interest in governance, you're not going to get the kind of engagement leverage that you need to bring about the kind of change we're talking about.
1: Mr. Contapasas, thank you not only for spending some time with us talking about the state of education in Boston, but for your service, your your lifelong service on behalf of the Boston community. Thank you for all of that service.
2: Well, you're very kind. The system has been very good to me. It's painful to see what's going on. It really is.
1: Well, we hope by elevating your voice and the voices of others that we'll find a way forward.
0: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Mike Contempasis. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. To listen to this full special series of Last Night at School Committee and to view video content, visit bostonsuperintendent.com. Tune in tomorrow for our conversation with former Superintendent Carol Johnson. Have a great day.